Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Tyson Beach joining us. Dr. Tyson Beach is currently a teaching professor at the University of Waterloo, teaching courses on the biomechanics and assessment of human movement, exercise description, and low back disorders. His previous research focused on quantitative motion analysis, prevention of work-related musculoskeletal disorders, and advancing fundamental knowledge of spinal mechanics, control, and injury causation. He also collaborates with other researchers and practitioners to design, implement, and evaluate physical activity and exercise programs for workers and athletes. In this episode, we discussed the epidemiological and biomechanical literature around lifting with spinal flexion, acknowledging that biomechanics is only one of the many factors in low back disorders. The goal of the discussion is to highlight the nuances in understanding biomechanics literature rather than to provide a definitive answer to this topic. I personally found this discussion incredibly interesting and stimulating, and I hope you all enjoy it and find it thought-provoking too. To outline the flow of this episode, I have added timestamps in the episode description to help you follow the discussion as it evolved. But I highly recommend that you just stick with the flow and hear the whole discussion rather than jumping around sections. I hope that helps and hope you enjoy the discussion. Hi, Tyson. Thank you so much for being on Paincast with me. I super, super look forward to our conversation today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm also looking forward to it. It's really a pleasure and honor to have the opportunity to speak with you about this. Same to me. Pleasure and honor to have you. To start, can you introduce who you are, what you do, and what a typical week looks like for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. This is always one you can go around in circles, but my typical week right now, um, you know, I work at a university three days a week, so about 60% of my work. I'm a lecturer, like in a more of a teaching-focused professor. I teach courses in movement assessment, exercise design, biomechanics, and also low back disorders, uh, which is some of the things we'll be talking about today. And the other two days a week, I'm a co-director of a center for community clinical and applied research excellence. So my role is a lot kind of leading education and training initiatives, both for our staff and our students and making connections with our academic program. Yes. So I have you on today to talk about this giant topic of low back disorders and the biomechanical considerations. Do you mind giving a little bit of your background in this area so our audience can know that you're more than qualified to talk about this? Yeah, well, I'm always a little bit nervous about that because um, I am teaching low back disorders now, but I've taken over the course. So my background, I went to university, you know, interested in performance and, you know, health and exercise and all those kinds of things. And as a student, I became fascinated, you know, with spinal mechanics and control. So how does the low back work? How does it function? Um, what does dysfunction look like when are, you know, basic structure function relations? So that became, you know, something that was a real deep interest of mine, really from a fundamental standpoint. So basically, you know, how do spines work, at least in, in function? And then um, that's where I ended up pursuing graduate studies. So I kind of went down that path with, a, you know, doing a master's degree first. Um, that was a, 
you know, even though kind of in the ergonomic space, I was really more interested in just how spines worked. So that was kind of the, you know, the framework that we looked at. And then as I got into my PhD work, I was still doing that type of thing, but I was able to kind of, you know, come full circle and integrate my love of spinal mechanics and control and the fundamentals and how it kind of interface with, you know, athletic and performance uh, development. So I do have a lot of background in the area. It's not something I do a lot of at the moment. So I want to give that qualifier because, uh, you know, I do teach a course, but the course, you know, um, we cover a lot of territory and there's some things I know, you know, I feel quite comfortable that I have a lot of depth and some things I'm still learning. So I'll, I'll do my best, <laughs> um, you know, to talk about those things with that background. <clears throat> For sure. Appreciate the qualifier. Well, the other reason I thought you'd be an excellent guest on this topic is um, just how much how much breadth of papers you read and the critical thinking you bring into it. I've always enjoyed our discussions back in the days in the biomechanics lab. So you'd be a great person to talk about this. I also enjoyed those. Now, let's just dive right into it. You're passionate about how spines work and Throughout these years, you've come a long way um, right now teaching. And there's there's a big debate on flexion, spinal flexion, whether that is something that is good or something that's not good. Would it be possible if you can summarize that debate a little bit to get a start off? Yeah, that's, so it's a really tough question. It's a big area. I think, you know, as you're kind of walking through thinking about this as well, it's a big topic to summarize, I guess. I think there is a, a lot of discussion and debate um, currently about that type of recommendation. Um, so the reason I struggle at a high level just kind of even summarizing it is because there's a lot of nuance in how you think about not only the limited epidemiology we have, but also how it kind of dovetails and triangulates with other areas. And if you really push me, you know, based on my, you know, my knowledge of the research, which is indeed limited in some respects, but it's hard to have a super hard, you know, yes, no, good, bad type of uh, answer to that. And I think, I know everybody hates this, but it kind of depends, right? Like for some people in some circumstances and in some contexts or whatever that may be, I think it may be more advisable to avoid extremes in spinal motion, especially under load, especially done repetitively. Um, whereas some people, you know, doing it once, one time in a, you know, with a healthy back with no history, you know, it's probably not anything to worry about. I think the big issue, or there's a whole bunch of issues in this space, um, you know, in the debate, there's been some great papers come out the last couple of years challenging, you know, I guess, kind of directives and kind of instructions or recommendations. And I think one of the biggest contributions they made, thinking in particular, you know, Sarah Cena was the lead author and O'Sullivan's group and that um, just excellent work. But the epidemiology is quite weak in that space. And it's actually a very difficult epidemiological question because I don't think anyone who reads this research kind of honestly would look at it and say there's going to be a single risk factor for especially for something like pain, if that's the outcome or disability that are very like multidimensional, highly non-monocausal, um, at least to our current knowledge. So even to do this epidemiologically is very, very difficult. And I think, you know, the biggest issue I see, a big issue I should say, is just the exposure measurements. 
maybe I'll pause there for a sec because I don't know or what that might mean to you and you know your audience better. So I'd like to be thinking more about, you know, what if I were to think of epidemiology and exposure, like what would that mean to you? I would preface that I do have a little bit of a research background, maybe a little more than um, my physio colleagues, but I would think about that as in measuring how much people go through that motion on a day-to-day basis. Beautiful. Yeah. So I think I agree. It's something like that. And there's different ways, you know, if you talk to an epidemiologist, they will have different kind of um, ways to define that. But a lot of the studies that get looked at, they don't actually measure spinal flexion during daily activities, occupation, work. So they may do something. So when it's done at all, which is actually not frequently, it's done, say, in a laboratory, um, you know, we'll look at people who do something pre and post or sorry, you know, maybe cases and controls or people, if you ever have longitudinal and there aren't many studies where you'll have people who are, you know, not experiencing an issue or haven't and then tracking them. So what you get is you get these little snapshots of how people move in certain contexts. And this could sound like a bit of an apologist, but I think it's quite important because a lot of this musculoskeletal epidemiology, one of the biggest challenges is like, you said the right word, how much, right? So in a lab under controlled circumstances, doing a few tasks, you know, performing them, that's not a good measure of exposure, right? That's just, you know, a snapshot about what someone did in that particular context. It's very difficult to know if that's how they move in life and all the activities. And then when you think of how much, it's even trickier because you have frequency, intensity, which could be load and speed and some kind of duration, right? So you're kind of thinking about how do you map the actual exposure. So it's very difficult in a lab study like that's typically done. Um, even in the higher quality studies in this space, we still don't have a lot of great exposure data. So a lot of the, the studies that I look at, when especially these more syntheses and meta-analyses and systematic reviews, they'll use something like a grade instrument or something to really assess you know, the quality of the research. And I think sometimes I might rate it a little differently, the quality, based on how good the exposure measurement is. And I think that's an opinion I have. I'm not an epidemiologist, but you know, I think another thing these studies have done really well, um, especially the Saraceni, one thing I loved in their study, because this has been an issue when I've been reading things for a long time, Measuring spine motion is very hard, even in a lab, to do it well. So what I loved in their study was they actually showed all of the different ways that people were quantifying spine flexion. And, you know, I've done a lot of this work myself and been involved in it. And I can tell you, at least my you know hypothesis, we'd have to test it. I would hope somebody does this someday. I think some of those measurements are going to be more or less sensitive to capture the changes that you would see. So already there's a lot of studies that I might say, I'm not really sure you'd catch this based on how you are doing it, but maybe that's a, that's also interesting, right? Maybe you maybe it has to be so large to make a difference. And maybe that's actually you know part of the case. Um, I have a few more things on the measurement. If it's not, we won't bore your readers too much. I, I think it's important to cover. Uh, I agree with you that I loved the meta-analysis from Saraceni, how they laid out how each study measured lumbar motion. And that was really informative to my critical appraisal of that paper. So why don't we go ahead with that to illustrate how different measurements can produce different conclusions so that our audience can be aware of that? 
Yeah. So one of the ways we typically, it's, I shouldn't even say typically because there isn't a typical way. There's lots of ways people try to quantify spine motion. I tend to come from, you know, kind of a lineage in my training where we try to typically uh, measure where the rib cage is in space relative to where the pelvis is. So you have these two different segments and you're looking at the relative rotation between those segments. And that's what we would call quote unquote spine motion or lumbar spine motion. And what that does is it basically distributes, like we have mathematical models, if we really want to get into the weeds, kind of distributes the motion amongst all of the segments in between there. So that's kind of one way to do it. Uh, it's a way I still do it a lot because the more precise you think you're getting by putting markers on skin and having a lots more kind of down the column. Um, I'm not always convinced that's actually better, um, at least based on skin type measurements, if you're doing that, because there are a lot of other motion artifacts. So when you bend forward or extend back up, when your erector spinae you know, are activated, they actually move and they will change, you know, the skin markers, the skin motion will change all of these things. So it's kind of uh, a difficult, you know, to kind of do that. Now, this all comes kind of around because I guess my bigger kind of, it's not a criticism, but something to think about when you're thinking about this research is most studies will report things in degrees, like in an absolute number. So how much, you know, flexion has happened. That doesn't really capture the biomechanical argument for avoiding extremes in spine motion. I'm, I'm going to say extremes because most of us recognize, I've been measuring this for 20 some years, um, people will move their spines even when they try not to. I don't think though that everyone needs, I don't think, I think people can be coached, instructed or in this situation to not use their full range of motion, like not to go right to the end range. Um, depends on the context, right? Like how low are you lifting, how much, blah, blah, blah. But I would love to see, and this is not a criticism because no one really does this often, but a better way to look at this would be to have some measure of people's maximum range of motion that they could exhibit voluntarily. So whether they do like something like a toe touch or you can do this many different ways to try to even get relaxed, like an active assisted range of motion or kind of a pure active. And then what you do is you normalize the motion relative to someone's full range of motion. And the reason you do that is because there's going to be a lot of variability between people and how much quote unquote flexibility or mobility that they have there. And the biomechanical argument is a little bit more focused on the extremes. As you approach 75 to 80%, depending on the paper you read, that's when the passive tissues really kind of kick in. I mean, I'm making it sound like it's active, but they are, they basically are forced into participating based on the posture. So as you bend forward, your muscles will do the job of, you know, helping to control that eccentrically and then concentrically on the way up. But you're going to hit a point when the passive structures can kind of take over and they do. What are the passive structures? Yeah. So ligaments, discs, lumbodorsal fascia, passive contributions from muscles, just from them stretching and themselves. Mm. And that's part of the biomechanical argument is that, you know, those tissues, some of them, not all of them have the same adaptive capabilities and capacities and the time courses of adaptation. So some of them may be, quote unquote, a little more vulnerable to repeated or high magnitude exposure without adequate rest and recovery conditions. 
So, you know, reporting things in degrees to me are a little bit mis not misleading, but they just leave a little bit on the table because the actual biomechanical argument for flexion is not a kinematic. And what I mean by that is just a motion description. Um, that's the thing that we can modify, but there's a lot of other variables that go into that, but that's the thing that we will communicate because it can kind of like capture a whole bunch of things that are more difficult um, to uh, communicate. So as an example, if you were comparing two people or two groups, say people with or without back pain or people who develop eventually or don't develop, you know, three degrees difference doesn't actually tell me a lot or if it's five degrees or 10 degrees. But if you tell me that, you know, it's someone's maybe 60% of, of their max versus 85% of their max, that has a very different biomechanical meaning than the actual numbers themselves. And it's even one more, if I'm not going too deep, is even if you look at this in raw degrees, so let's say it's a three degrees difference between people, which doesn't sound like a lot, right? But it really depends on where you are in your emotion trajectory. So three degrees near the end range is actually quite a bit because you're basically pushing, like you're requiring a lot more involvement of your passive tissues, even though it's only like something small, that sounds small, like three degrees, the relationship between the passive structure, you know, and the motion is highly nonlinear. So the closer you get to the end, the more contributions you have from passive structures. So very small differences at end range may actually, at least biomechanically, have a reason to kind of view those very differently. And if you could imagine statistically, that may not shake out, um, you know, in certain kind of sample sizes. So the long story around this is that deflection, the kinematic variables, a little bit simplified. In the Saracini paper, they tested exactly what people say. But I think, you know, the biomechanical argument is slightly more, um, it involves more things, but that's the way we kind of put everything in a box and say, you know, try to limit end range flexion. Mm. To backtrack a little bit and to give the audience a fuller picture, the Saracini paper, what they're trying to do is to see whether people who have low back pain versus people who don't go into a laboratory setting, measure how much they flex when they're lifting something and draw a conclusion whether there is a relationship between them. And it's a meta-analysis, included a lot of cross-sectional and a few longitudinal papers. And their conclusion is that there is no relationship between how much you flex and the phenomenon of no back pain. And then now we are talking a little bit about the, the fact that we don't have great epidemiological evidence because really none of these studies are tracking exposure. They're tracking how participants did in that particular laboratory setting in that few particular lifts. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, um, yeah, I want to be careful because again, they have reviewed the research that's out there. Like the, the, the epidemiology is of quite low quality. This is very expensive work to do. It's going to get better. I hope someone does this. I hope this can motivate. Um, I've been trying to motivate my colleagues who have a lot of expertise in this area, but with wearable sensors now, I think we could actually do a lot better because it used to be so costly to get exposure data. Now it's so much less. It's still very expensive to do these studies. They're very difficult because, as you know, especially with your clinical training and experience, this isn't a monocausal thing. So you have to like control, you know, for all these mediating and moderating variables and so on and so forth. And I think the epidemiology that exists um, 
one, the exposure data is really quite weak. But also, too, I think our epidemiological methods, like our statistics, are much better now. So I hope that someone actually looks at this again with more, you know, with more contemporary technology, both from an exposure measurement, but also from a statistical analysis. Mm -hmm. For sure. Like that meta-analysis was published in 2020 and within three years where we're at now with wearable sensors and statistical tools, we're in a better advantage to do that. But given what we have with this data, what is the conclusion that we can draw from it that is fair to say? I think their conclusion, you know, based on what they included in their data, you know, and excluded with the, the trials as well. Um, I don't have a huge issue. I mean, the, the conclusion is strong. Like, I'm a lot less committal um, because I think there's all of these things that papers like this are great because they really make me question a lot of the assumptions I have. And it has a lot. You know, it's really made me think about, you know, how strong are these data and how strong are these characteristics? Now, I have this other kind of bias and I'm going to just lay it out here, be at least be explicit about it. There's a lot more evidence in this space than these kinematic lab studies or epidemiology. But that wasn't their goal. That wasn't the purpose of their of their papers. So I don't want to you know, create some claim that they didn't do it. That wasn't what they intended. You know, I think based on the studies that they looked at and how they evaluated, you know, based on its low quality, I would say very low quality. And I think they talk about this in the discussion a bit because, you know, this that's like quantifying quality by definition is a very difficult thing. So, you know, I think they acknowledge that the, if anything, we can just say like, we don't really have great data either way, at least from this perspective. So I think, you know, to say there isn't a strong association, sure. Um, you can find lots of, and I think anyone has had this experience, whether they've, you know, been experiencing back pain or working with somebody. When people are in pain, they can change how they move. Right. Like that's not really controversial. The The thing is, though, is people can be quite variable in how they do that. You know, some people will guard maybe because of pain or because of other attitudes and beliefs around it. And some people will grind through it and keep doing what they're doing. All this pain behavior is really tricky. So I don't, you know, it's not surprising to me that that data is all kind of all over the place. Like people with pain and without, they move differently. That's not controversial. I mean, that's been shown since as long as I've read this research. Um, it's definitely though not directional all the time. Like the story, the consistent direction, like it tends to be kind of all over the place. So I think, you know, their data shows that, you know, there's not a clear thing. Now they reported on one longitudinal study, which would be what we really like. And it's, you know, the forest plot shows it doesn't cross, you know, it's got a zero in the confidence interval, these kinds of things. Like that's, you know, that's where we are in that. That's literally, they found one paper. I actually am not aware. I've been looking for this a little bit as this debate has kind of raged, but it's not something I could spend a ton of time on. But I actually don't think there are great prospective studies on this. And even if they were, again, if all we're doing is looking at a lab exposure and not looking at how much people are doing it, whether it's at work and life and play and what activities, I'm not sure we're ever going to get a great answer on that. Yep, I agree. So how's that for a non-answer, Tiffany? <laughs> well, that that's the point of the discussion, right? To lay out these uncertainties and unknown factors so we can be we can put more nuances around the conclusion that we're drawing. Well, even can I make one more comment? I'm I'm sorry I kind of missed this. There's so many things. I've been thinking about this for a long time, but 
So one is, you know, the normalization versus unnormalized. That would be a better kind of assessment of the biomechanical argument for it. Acknowledging that low back disorders, you know, this isn't a biomechanical thing alone. Um, and some people question whether that's at all. Um, I'm not sure how we get there based on the current evidence that it's completely irrelevant under all circumstances. Um, you know, but I think this idea of even flexion, like what movements and motions and activities are we talking about? Are we talking about manual handling, like lifting, carrying, pushing, pulling? Are we talking about prolonged sitting? Are we talking about, you know, any other type of activity? I mean, all of these things are going to interplay and anyone who's taken an introductory ergonomics course, which I know you're way beyond that, you learn like, you know, these risk factors for at least musculoskeletal disorders from the physical perspective, it's an interplay between force posture and repetition, right? Um, and these things are like highly interrelated and complex, you know, high force for low repetition in a tolerable posture is a much lower risk than something in a more deep, you know, a posture that's more challenging to produce force and you have to do it a lot of times, right? So the idea that flexion, you know, we can say that as a broad statement to me is just already like not really setting the conversation in a good trajectory. <laughs> For sure. Now, you mentioned the debate has gone to a point where some people even argue that biomechanics is irrelevant in the low back pain discussion. While in ergonomics, we learned that force, repetition, and posture are highly relevant to workplace injuries. What are some of the evidence behind this claim? So if we take a broader case of not just low back, and again, you know, there's some of it's cross-sectional. It's all observational in this, what I'm speaking about now. But, you know, there are examples of people who have, I mean, it's going to call it physically demanding to kind of lump all of that stuff in together for a sec. So force, posture, repetition, like the more challenging or demanding combinations of those things. Um, there's a signal there. It shows up very consistently, again, when you measure exposure, right? Exposure by asking people what they do at work is actually not really a great exposure measurement, but it shows up in a lot of studies that show null findings. But if you're not quantifying these exposures in a you know way that has some validity, um, those when you do that well, there tends to be a signal there. Like, I don't think a lot of people argue that too often. So as an example, you know, there's papers probably from the early 2000s. I'm thinking, you know, actually not only linking low back disorders, the general case, but like very specific injuries like herniations, degenerative changes or like, you know, disc, other type of disc disruptions and those kinds of things. So there are those papers and some will say some will will pull papers or you know present papers that say there is nothing but oftentimes the exposure measurements really kind of weak again i know it sounds you know like an apologist thing and i i you know i want to be careful because i'm trying to be open to that as well but i think we have to have an honest discussion about how we're quantifying like how we're documenting exposures mhm mm i think there are probably the tissue side of things that we can look at but also a lot of the occupational training studies that we can look at. Why don't we get into each of them a little bit and trying to see what we can understand from these evidences. In terms of tissue biomechanics, let's just go back to the low back discussion. What, what are these studies about? How, how are they typically performed? 
Yeah, so it actually can come, that's a range as well. So I think you're probably talking a lot about, you know, the labs I was trained in. So the labs I was trained in, it was really a combination of this tissue lab, human movement, like in vivo, we called. So living people doing occupational or other athletic or other types of daily living activities. And then what we tried to do is develop a profile of what these spinal loads are like, or the motion, the postures, motions, and the loads, basically how all these things interplay. And then what you do is you take an animal model or cadaveric specimen, and you basically subject those specimens to the same loading that you had in these in vivo. And that can also come from epidemiology as well when we have that. So like what are the postures, motions, and loads and activities people are doing in daily life? And then we can actually expose whether it's an animal model or cadaveric models to that same exposure. And these are accelerated injury models, right? We put them in, oftentimes the tissue is dead. You know, there's a lot of preparation that goes into maintaining fluids and those kinds of things, but you can then test, put the same exposure or the same, you know, kind of loading and motion patterns together and basically reproduce the injuries that you see in some populations, right? So things like herniation, we can do that, or I say we, you know, I'm using the royal we, not me, um, but we pretty much know how to do that in a lab. Like we can produce herniations in a lumbar segment or a model of that, like really consistently with lots of bending and or twisting with some kind of modest load. Like that's exactly how you do it almost every time. <laughs> so when you kind of begin thinking about triangulation, when you look at jobs or activities that have lots of bending, twisting under kind of modest loads, there's some evidence that those will also be linked with things like herniations, right? So you do see this kind of, and then you could have more biomechanical kind of evidence to be able to, you know, try to kind of connect the dots here a little bit. So when I'm talking about something like flexion, this is the way I'm thinking about all these different kind of areas uh, of research and where there is some kind of overlap. The biggest criticism that I think is important for all of us to consider, I guess first I have to defend some of my colleagues because I've been sitting on thesis committees and, and watch thesis defenses for over 20 years in this space. Everyone is quite aware a dead pig spine is not a human lumbar spine. Like that actually we all agree on. Um, and every time someone does that kind of, you know, uses that kind of model, like we really have to subject ourselves to how good of a model that actually is. So some of these criticisms, you know, that, oh my God, it's dead pig spine, you know, doesn't tell us anything like, yeah, um, we, we've thought of that as well. Um, that's not the first time that that's came out, um, but it actually is still an important, you know, we always have to come back to that, um, that of course, like the adaptive processes are not enabled. Yes, it's subjected to lots of cycles, but it's not, there's lots of cases where people do this with accelerated injury models. They'll do it in long bones, like for running and other types of things as well. Um, so I've kind of meandered there a bit. You may need to bring me back to reality here a little bit. Okay. So how much of a difference is using porcine or porcine models compared to human spines? Like, can we trust those Conclusions from tissue biomechanics studies. Well, it, yeah, trust. I think we can have a lot of trust in, you know, the research. The question I think you're probably asking or people would be more concerned about is that is, you know, can we extrapolate this or is it externally valid for the types of things we're doing? So I actually do think, you know, I've not done a good job in this part, um, maybe some other parts too, but this one in particular is that 
you know, these studies are designed to look at tissue disruption slash damage, right? And I think a lot of us, you know, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I don't think all back pain is easily linked to, you know, bonafide disruption and damage. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think there are other mechanisms, even from pure kind of what some people now consider older school, like, you know, nociception and those kinds of things. You don't always have to have damage or disruption to elicit those pathways. And I know there are, you know, for chronicity and all these other kinds of things, there are other hypotheses about, you know, the underlying causes. So if you let me say that of the pain experience, but when it comes to the injuries, um, I think we can be fairly, you know, confident that we can reproduce these things. We have ideas of what those loading scenarios are like. We have evidence of end plate fractures in living people. When we image them, we have evidence of dis disruption, fissures, full blown horniations, those kinds of things. So, um, you know, these things do happen. People will question, you know, how much does that impact on society, right? Like if we actually look at disability and pain, that's a totally different question, right? So low back disorders to me are disruptions in structure functions. Sometimes they manifest as, you know, symptoms like pain or movement impairments or whatever, but there may be other cases and there's some evidence of this where there's some damage and disruption and degeneration or degenerative processes that are accelerated um, that maybe don't have a symptom at the current time. Um, maybe it did at one time, maybe it doesn't now. So I think, you know, these tissue studies at least enable us to reproduce a subset of the injuries and tissue damage or disruption that we see, like herniations, like end plate fractures, even things, you know, depending on the, on the loading paradigm, spondylitic fractures, like there's lots of different things that we can learn about, about the mechanics of those types of injuries. Um, is it a good model of adaptation? No, we, they're often dead tissue, right? So, and I think the argument is that there's some of the tissues like cartilage, which is comprises a big part of the end plate and like disc as well, is that um, they do adapt, absolutely, but they also maladapt, right? Like these things, uh, we don't have evidence that they can just positively respond forever and always to any loading scenario. And I don't wanna say people would suggest that, but we can't just like wave our hands and say tissues adapt, you know, um, and therefore like just kind of slow cook it, right? Like mm -hmm. if you, if you're training people or trying to rehabilitate, just kind of like grade, you know, the loading again. But the challenge is, is that we, it's really hard to know how the loads are happening in a living person. So giving someone an exercise, for example, at least in theory, how you do that exercise will dictate what the actual tissue loads are, what structures are being loaded. So it's actually very hard to dose at that level. And I think that's, again, where a lot of the biomechanical recommendations come in because you're trying to, you know, give suggestions in the real world, trying to steer these mechanical loads internally, knowing that there's a lot of variation and knowing that I can't really know exactly what your tissue is seeing. Um, mm -hmm. A living person. Mm. So allow me to summarize the discussion a little bit from the tissue biomechanics studies on spines. We can understand the condition under which spinal tissue injuries occur. For example, we can understand the relationship between force and repetition on injury reproduction, 
as well as how adding flexion and or twisting under modest conditions can consistently reproduce tissue injury. But we acknowledge that injury doesn't always equal pain, that people can have pain without an injury to their tissues and vice versa. And we also acknowledge that there are external validity questions of how well animal or cadaveric accelerated injury models apply to real in vivo loading conditions, like how spines are actually experiencing the loads in the living human as they move or lift. So now an argument I've heard in terms of exposure to flexion is important is that if we don't allow people to be exposed to flexion, even in a progressive loading manner, then we don't we don't give those tissue a chance to adapt to load in the flexed position and be resilient and robust in these positions where, you know, life demands can take you in different directions and maybe you do end up in a flex position in high loads. But if you don't prepare for that, there's a risk, higher risk of you getting injured. What, what do you think about that argument? Well, I think at a high level, that's not really controversial. I think there's a good reason to think that. I think though it's a little more, um, you know, if you let me get into the weeds again, because um, I find that argument interesting because a lot of people say are, you know, suggesting that like, hey, we flex all the time, like you can't avoid it. So then why do we need to flex more then if we're doing it all the time? Like that already is hard for me. So if you're sitting, if you're an able-bodied person and you are sitting, you're probably in a lot of flexion. Um, actually, I know this. I've measured this a lot. Um, um, people will sit with a lot of flexion. Your pelvis will posteriorly rotate and it just, your spine goes along for the ride. So we we do have exposure to a lot of flexion. When people lift and squat and push and pull in life, the spine does move. So I wouldn't say, you know, I'm not saying you're saying this, but like we do get a lot of flexion. Like look at our activities, people sitting in front of computers, sitting in cars. And again, I'm making a sweeping statement because that's not the case for everybody, of course. But there, I did to say that, you know, we wouldn't be prepared. It's kind of interesting because if that was the case, then why are you know, like, you know, we are getting a lot of that exposure. Now that's a little bit unfair too, because people would push back rightly um, to say, well, you know, that's kind of low, maybe it's too prolonged, blah, blah, blah. But if, you know, if we think of some of the tissues that are involved in resisting flexion, let's say the passive tissues like the disc and some of the other passive structures, you don't need to bend a disc to load it and make it strong. Like you can keep a spine you know, without a lot of bending and apply lots of compression. And the way the, the the fibers in the discs, like the collagen fibers are crisscrossing multiple layers all the way through it. So when you squeeze a disc, all of the collagen fibers are stretching all over the place. So you don't have to bend it to make that, like you're already loading it when you compress even the neutral. So you can, you know, you could do heavy squats or deadlifts without major motion. Like you will have some, that's the issue. You will have it, right? The question is, is are, does it need to go to end range? Do we need to put people in forced end range flexion? I'm not convinced of that yet, but that's purely from like a mechanical physiological perspective. I absolutely understand the argument that people 
who maybe are, there's no evidence of like major damage or issues. And they have shrunk their movement vocabulary so much and been afraid to move. So more of a graded exposure, kind of more psychological type of intervention. I absolutely see why that could be helpful because when the tissue is at least not acute, you know, maybe, or if it's tissue based at all, whatever that may be, um, you know, that is a level of movement impairment or dysfunction that you're unable or unwilling to move your back at all. So I do think there would be times where that would make sense um, from an exposure, like now I'm talking using exposure differently, but it'd be a graded exposure type of approach. But I don't, you know, know that you need to apply a lot of mechanical load in that situation. Um, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see the benefit in doing it, to be quite honest. Given the uncertainty, uh, I just don't know why you would, knowing that you're going to be flexing and bending a lot anyways in life. Mm. That's very interesting. I totally agree with you that in the context of people with kinesiophobia or fear avoidance, they are afraid to bend. That is causing them debilitating ways of moving. Graded exposure would be a great idea. But the evidence, as far as we can tell, loading and ranges of flexion may not be a good idea. Yeah, it's hard. Like my biomechanical bias says there's enough like kind of other bigger bodies of research if we think about, you know, the mechanics of and that's again, it always depends again, right? Like, are you talking one time? Or are you talking about doing 300 reps a week, which yes, may even, you know, there may be an advantage of that in a training context. But I think what a lot of people forget with exercise, um, or that type of, you know, whether it's exercise or movement based kind of interventions, you're also rehearsing, right? Your motor learning, you're developing a behavioral pattern. So that type of training even if it was tissue based and great, you know, part of my PhD work was actually showing the transfer of this style of training or, you know, other, not that training, but, you know, having people not do that was more likely to transfer when you build a motor learning and behavior standpoint. So what I'm saying here, maybe the easier way to think about it is if you're practicing moving like this all the time. Um, perhaps you would be more likely to do that in life because that just becomes the way your, your actual body physics, your dynamics works. Like you just get more comfortable. It's kind of your pattern. Like, you know, we always would teach, you know, if you cross your arms, you ask people, then you say, cross it the other way. And people will find that really like awkward feeling, right? It's a, just a behavior. It's a habit. And if you practice this in training, you may be more likely to do it all the time. And maybe that your overall load management is actually not great when you're only looking at a, a gym perspective or a, you know, a clinical perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I, in terms of my anecdotal personal experience, once I started to repeat that sort of motion at the gym, which is to hinge at the hips, keeping the back as quote unquote neutral as possible. And I, I do carry that over to lifting in daily lives a lot, like for example, moving homes and whatnot. There was a study you'll be very familiar with by Dr. Dave Frost on comparing and contrasting training with the movement focus versus the fitness focused. And that's really a good evidence for what we're talking about here. I'm sorry for cutting the discussion here. Tyson and I had such great discussion that it went on for two hours. This is the first half of it, so if you don't want to miss out, 
go ahead and listen to part two of the discussion where we pick up where we left off and continue with more stimulating discussions.